Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm actually very excited again. Today we have um, a guest, again, a foreigner just like myself and someone that has been behind the trenches for quite a bit. So Alexei Agrachev from Retail Next, welcome on board today. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. So you're originally from Moscow and you were living in the Soviet Union when things were kind of like falling apart. So how was the experience of uh, growing up there for you? Yeah, no. So, yeah, I was born in Moscow and I grew up, I guess, towards the end of the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, I, I would say I, I caught in my first couple grades in school, first and second grade, it was very much still kind of the Soviet style education. In fact, I got kicked out of my first grade class because I uh, apparently I mispronounced some some words and some communist poems and I got kicked out for having anti-communist tendencies. So that that teacher was still very hardcore and my parents had to find me another another class. And then things are, you know, definitely started to open up. But it was a it was it, it was the, the things I, I would say were very different from looking at my kids now growing up in the U.S. and or even people in Russia now is that everybody like while I came from a I would say a highly educated family my you know dad as a you know went to you know got very well educated as a linguist and an interpreter my uncle was a mathematician my grandmother uh, or still is a mathematician my grandmother was a fairly well known chemist. You know, it was not a, it, it was in retrospect, actually, everybody lived very, very poorly, even though people were highly accomplished and educated. And as a result of that, I felt like if I look at me and my friends outside of sports, we had very little ambition. It was not like you didn't have any real role models you saw around us that you wanted to look up to that were more successful, that had money, that did all these different things. I would say sports and athletics was the only thing that motivated us in those years. Got it. Got it. So what was the uh, trigger for you to come to the U.S. for boarding school? Yeah, it was a bit. Uh, it was a bit random where I mean, the main thing is at that time. Even or at least having an opportunity to travel and get exposure to, I mean, Western films and other things were very, very popular was something all of us did want because we watched it. I wanted to learn English. And, you know, so I, you know, I told my parents that I would have loved to learn English. My dad was an interpreter and he was in the U.S. with a, uh, with a delegation of, I think, you know, Soviet scientists as an interpreter. And he was able to get a couple applications for boarding schools. He helped me fill them out because I didn't speak the language at the time. And, you know, because I was the only kid from the Soviet Union that applied, it wasn't a very well thought through plan, but because I was the only kid that applied, I got, you know, full scholarship and, and kind of an opportunity to come over. So pretty cool, pretty yeah, cool. And, is, and you yeah. had um, you had actually a, a family that was uh, kind of like uh, overseeing you and and watching you while you were in the U.S. Who who was this family? Yeah, well, what happened is you know when when you were uh, you know I was 14 years old when I first came and I came by myself and I, I lived in boarding school. Room and board was taken care of, but you do need to have a legal guardian of sorts, somebody who takes a few under 18 responsibility for you in the country and. And, you know, initially it was a family in New England that uh, was a family that volunteered to do that. And they became my legal guardians. And then after uh, 
after the first quarter or so when they got my uh, grade report, because I was a, uh, I didn't really speak the language. I my grades were pretty much failing, and after they got that, they they thought that I was you know, too stupid to be there. <laughs> Somebody they take care of, so they said they didn't want to be my legal guardians anymore. And then I, you know, and then I, I again, as sort of at that time, uh, a guy named Michael Eisner, who was the chairman and CEO of Disney, uh, you know, was uh, in Russia for a brief trip uh, to look at some opportunities. And they assigned my dad to interpret for him. And they, they, you know, they got along. My dad mentioned to him that, you know, he had a son in school and he wanted to meet me. And then he actually volunteered to be my legal guardian. So he became my legal guardian for the rest of my time in, uh, in middle school. And I spent my Thanksgivings with them. And that was also, you know, never been, you know, it, it was an interesting experience in general because I've never been outside of the Soviet Union at that time, never had exposure to certain people. And then you come to this boarding school where if you look at those boarding schools, actually a big culture shock for a lot of Americans. And yeah. certainly for me, you have, you know, 0.001% of the wealthiest and you know, families in, in the world that send their kids there. And then, I, you know, I ended up with a legal guardian who was a chairman CEO, one of the largest, most successful kind of companies in the U.S. And got a, it was a lot of uh, exposure to things that I've never experienced before. Wow. I mean, definitely incredible to, to, to be there with the chairman and the CEO of Disney. So, so what, what did you learn from such an accomplished uh, leader yourself? Well, and, and again, it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just him. I think if you look at in general, as, as I did learn it, the language about six months into my first year, I you know started, be, I was able to communicate and, and start making friends. And then people, because I was a foreign kid, people started inviting me for the weekends and in, uh, in their homes and, you know, some holidays and Thanksgivings. I went with uh, my colleagues family. It was a number of people that I, that I've been exposed to that I would say were extremely successful, ran big companies. And, and to me, I think that the one quality that I remember is, is with a lot of people, it just was this phenomenal curiosity where I was, you know, 15, 16 year old kid, 14, 15, 16, depending on the, on the year. And you have these people that are unbelievably successful beyond like anything I've seen before that are just unbelievably curious about my life and what it was like growing up in Russia and the different things. And they were asking so many questions and they were so curious. Like I've never really experienced that before. And I would say that was the most consistent quality you'll find people. And, and they seem, you know, extremely genuinely interested and they felt like they could learn a lot from kind of a random young kid just because I came from a, from a different place. Got it. Got it. And, and, and listening is, is definitely one of the qualities that, that I always see in, in, in great leaders. No? So just out of curiosity, did, did he at least take you to Disneyland? Yeah, no, I had a lot of, um, ability, in fact, you know, ability to go to Disneyland, you know, my whole family would spend a, uh, a weekend in the world Disney world. And when I was, I went to college in Southern California, so both Disneyland as well as I were able to, and then eventually my dad for, uh, you know, for a few years worked for Disney as well. So it was, uh, and then I also had a chance to, uh, when they, I'm a, you know, grew up playing hockey and was a big hockey fan. And then when Disney launched Anaheim Mighty Ducks, uh, they, they don't own any mobility. They launched and they owned the team for a while. I would go to kind of games. I got to know all the players I actually helped a lot of the, uh, some of the Russian players that they drafted that. You know, these are slightly older than I was. I was 14. They're more, you know, called 18, 19, these kids. But some of them never been outside of Russia, didn't speak a word of English. And all of a sudden they found themselves in, in Orange County playing for NHL team. And they had to learn the language. They also, they, you know, now they, they actually went from having no money to being quite wealthy, but not knowing anything about the system. So I actually was, you know, got to know a lot of them. It was, it was a helping them out was, was English and language and other things. Cause I went through that a few years before, which was fun. Wow. What an amazing experience. And then you go to college and then after that you become a consultant for Accenture. What, what made you go there? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I did not know what I wanted to do all the way up until I was graduating and even, and after, and honestly, after I graduated. So if I look at it, I, uh, College was the first time I really started liking academics and I started enjoying learning. And before that, it was more about sports and athletics for me. And, uh, and I knew I wanted to do something. I, I actually, until the, almost the very end, I thought I was going to go back to Russia after college. And then I started applying to jobs at, you know, the college I went to at the time, I graduated in 1999. The number one job for my school was investment banking. That's what everybody wanted to do. And like, I think, you know, a 
analyst job at kind of an entry-level associate and the job at Goldman Sachs was the number one job that most, a lot of people went into from that school. It was a very, you know, I went to Claremont McKenna, very uh, focused on finance and economics and very, and, 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 you know, a lot of people went into finance, a lot of very successful alums in finance and private equity. And I, initially I was kind of started going down that route. And then all my friends from a year ahead of me that went to investment banking just hated the, the job because, well, you know, I think it was amazing training, especially at that time, the job was ridiculous hours doing a lot of mind-numbing work. And while well, it does train your attention to detail and spreadsheet skills at that time, like, I don't think that's what I want to do. And because I didn't know what I wanted to do, consulting seemed like a great opportunity to continue learning while making some money. I didn't have a, I didn't have a financially, I wasn't in a position to go to graduate school and I didn't think I wanted to do it. So I applied to, uh, you know, uh, Accenture at that time, medicine consulting. And I think it was a phenomenal way. Well, I don't see myself as a career consultant and I figured that out pretty quickly. It was a phenomenal way to uh, to start your career. I think both the training you get, the kind of people you get exposed, and frankly, you know, I had an opportunity to jump into a, a company at a level I wouldn't be able to do it, you know, without without that because you get exposure to the to the folks. But it was really, yeah, it was really delaying uh, this my decision making because I didn't know what I was wanted to do. And that was Cisco Systems, right? That, yeah, that was the, yeah, eventually where you went to. Yeah, so Cisco was my last client in um, at Accenture, and I, and that was at the time. Today, Cisco is obviously a big, very successful, highly profitable company, but I guess most of it was a legacy old school company. At that time, it was the hottest company out there, right? So it was in 99, 2000, the stock was doubling every six months. Cisco was on the covers of all these magazines. That was the place to work. And I was uh, put on the project there as a consultant, helping actually build a, you know, it was mostly a hardware company almost, you know, made all their money from hardware, had a lot of software, but didn't have really a software business. They wanted to transition from being a pure hardware company to being more of a, have a real software business. Uh, they looked at IBM as a, which went through a similar transition as a case study and they hired Accenture Anderson Consulting to help them with the strategy and with that. And that's the project I was, I was working on and, and I was working very close. It was the guy running product management for a lot of the software and a lot of the other leadership in the, on the, in the, Kind of this emerging software group and at Cisco. Really cool. And and you were, I mean, I believe I, I I've seen that you were like something like 25 years old and managing like 80 engineers that were reporting to you. Is that right? Yeah. No. So I joined Cisco. I was there for about a, you know a year or so and as a consultant. And then the guy, one of my main clients, convinced me to join initially as a product manager. And I was launched launched a uh, a new product and and then yeah, it was. Uh, I definitely got a lot of opportunities very quickly. I got, there was a, you know, I got asked to manage a team. So I became a manager probably when I was, I think, 22, maybe, where I became a manager initially of, uh, it's, it's a team. And I was managing engineers. I've never, you know, been an engineer. But at that time, uh, you know, the guy running the business unit that was part of wanted to form this team where you, it was called Joint Venture Engineering Team, where you, we partnered with smaller software companies, brought in their products, you know, put in OEM kind of joint venture agreements. They would assign some engineers or work as part of my team. We would hire some engineer. We would build Cisco stuff around it and then we sell it as a Cisco pro enhanced Cisco product. And they wanted somebody who had, you know, technical knowledge, understood technology, which at that point I showed that I could, but also wasn't an engineer who wanted to build everything in-house who could leverage, you know, third parties. So that's why I was asked to manage that team. We built that team to a few products. It was actually very successful and probably 15, 20 people working for me. But again, I, and I was doing product management, engineering, other things. And then there was a, a reorg and somehow they said, okay, you go manage this team now. And that team was a, about 80 people, about half in San Jose, half in India. They were just hardcore R&D engineering team. And yeah, so that was, uh, that was in, and I was, I think, 24, 25 at most, maybe a little younger when, when that happened. So I definitely got thrown into kind of management responsibility, managing people much older than me and also managing teams, doing stuff that I've never done before, right? So I've never been an engineer. Again, I could understand technology. I could, you know, I'm, I think that, you know, my mind certainly worked that way, but, I, but I've never actually been an engineer. Got it. So obviously at this point, we're talking about probably nine years of corporate America experience. So what would you say that got you thinking about, hey, you know, maybe I should explore this entrepreneurship kind of thing a little bit more? Yeah, so it was, uh, you know, Cisco was, by the way, also just, you know, put it in perspective, when I joined Cisco, it was this rocket ship for past 10 plus years. 
it, everybody who worked there see nothing but growth and, and prosperity. My first six months there, the stock went from, I think, 60 to 120 split and went to 80. And then it went all down, all the way down to mid single digits. And all of that happened before I vested a single share. So and then, and then it was, you know, but 2001 happened, dot com bust things. And then Cisco went from 10 plus years of nonstop growth to having to rationalize. We went to layoffs. We combined things. I had to find efficiencies. But, you know, it, it was an interesting time. Through all of that, I got a lot of opportunities. I also, you know, spent a while, like before I even began venture living, you know, working in Italy. I, I worked with customers around the world. I learned a lot. And it was, for me, I never thought about leaving because I was constantly learning and doing things. And then, you know, actually that the, the team that I managed when I took over at Engineers was it was a product that was used by a lot of the big telcos, and initially it had a lot of quality issues, and we were able to fix it for a while. One is it was an amazing management experience. To me, actually, being going from first-line manager to second-line manager when you have managers working for you, in many ways, was a bigger learning and a harder adjustment than becoming a manager for the first time. And then it was also a bigger team, and it was a multinational team, and you deal with all these customers, you deal with all these escalations, but it got to a point where it became a fairly, I don't want to say boring, but a fairly routine. It was a product that wasn't going to see a lot of new innovation. It was, it was fairly stable. We were working, supporting it. I didn't feel there was, you know, for a couple of years, it was amazing. I really didn't feel like I was learning that much. So I started looking at potentially leaving. And then my boss at the time told me, you know what? Said a team of about 80 people. She said, take up to five people from all the committed budgets and, you know, see if you can find something new you can prototype and do as long as it's relevant to Cisco. So I took, you know, there were, you know, five you know, people I really, really liked that were really good on my team. And then we said, let's look at, you know, something interesting to do. At that time, Cisco acquired a uh, company called Sidepix, a small startup in San Diego that had this hardware for video surveillance for the, uh, uh, for the casino market. They had, you know, like Caesar's Palace, Venetian, a bunch of casinos deployed that uh, where they were using, uh, uh, using their hardware to digitize their old school video. And then we, you know, I got to know the founder of the company and I said, you know, I think we can probably prototype a software application that could do some cool you know, like analytics around it and could, could help you use that data, the video better. We we built a prototype because I had some resources. We showed it at a trade show. You know, customers got excited. This was for casinos. And then we got a uh, funding to do it as an internal startup as part of something called the Emergent Technology Group, which was a fairly recent thing that Cisco created to enable internal startups within Cisco. Now, you know, the idea was to, you know, have a different model to be able to incubate these businesses and hopefully some of them will grow to billion dollar plus businesses because, you know, it's the scale of Cisco building a hundred million dollar business actually didn't have much of a, much of an impact. So we, in, in, you know, and for a good year and a half, two years, give or take, we ran it as an internal startup. And it was, you know, where we were able to really do everything and kind of, I had, you know, once in a while conversation with the guy running the, the bigger group about budgets. But other than that, I did whatever, you know, we needed to do. And we, and honestly, the funny thing is looking back at it, I look at the team, there was, even though we were only, we, from an upside perspective, we had no real additional equity, we had no real upside like you do in a real startup, but for sure we worked at least as hard and people were at least as motivated. And I think if, if we were left alone, for all I know, we would have kept working like that uh, until now. But then right. what happens at a company like Cisco, while you experiment with these startups, it is very, very difficult for a big corporate company to truly leave teams like that alone. And Cisco especially, nobody at Cisco really had a true P&L responsibility below the CEO. It was all, so, you know, it started getting to a point pretty quickly once you start reaching some scale where it, was, it stopped being managed as a startup and you were kind of forced to take a functional role while I had more of a general manager type of acting role, take a, a functional role, either manage engineering or manage that. And that's at the time when I said, you know what, I don't think I want to do that now. So I, you know, I left. And actually the first six people as part of Retail Nest, my current company, this was in 2007, all six of us were part of that internal startup. After that, we went out, I went out of my way not to hire any more Cisco people for a long time to get some diversity of thought and experience. Got it. And and you guys kind of like all got a line or or you're like big aha moment of we need to put in the notice and, and make this happen on our own was at a trip in the British Virgin Islands where you got your initial name. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. 
it's so it's interesting. So I, I, you know, I was thinking about leaving. So yeah, when I was thinking about leaving, and uh, it was, uh, I remember actually the guy who, uh, uh, the, the, this guy Pete Jankowski, who was a founder of the uh, the company I mentioned in San Diego. Uh, he had a house in St. John, which is U.S. Uh, Virgin Islands, and he invited me there for a weekend with a few other guys. And then one of the guys was a uh, one of his customers for his previous company at Target. And I was at that time, I knew I wanted to leave. We would, we did all these very interesting things with computer vision and analytics for this casino product. And we were literally on the, you know, kind of on the boat. You know, we went from St. John to the British Virgin Islands. If you've been there, you're sort of bar hopping from island to island. And we were sailing and we're talking to the, you know, Pete and this guy who worked at Target about the kind of technologies that we built for casinos. And these guys like, you know, if you do something like that for retail and give this kind of visibility for people running stores, it would change the way we manage retail, he thought, you know, why don't I already decided I wanted to leave. I said, why don't we do that? We actually, and then because we were in the British Virgin Islands, we like wanted to name the company BVI. BVI.com was taken by uh, Buena Vista International. So I think we named it BVI Networks, which in retrospect was a kind of ridiculous name for the business, but we like incorporated and, and then, yeah, and that was kind of where the, where the idea came together there on the boat. It was the other, the other people that left with me, they weren't there, but we, they all also were in the same place where, hey, that startup feeling was over. So let's go try to do something outside together, right? So I knew they were gonna, they were, you know, wanted to go do something, but they weren't there in the BVI. So kind of where that, all that concept got formulated. Got it. So was the uh, rebrand to retail next uh, painful? Because normally rebrands are, are quite a challenge. Yeah, well, what happened was, you know, we were fairly, I mean, the, the, the problem was while the company was called BVI Networks, when we were launching our initial product, we called the product Retail Next. And, you know, in retrospect, having two different names for an early stage startup, having two different names, one, you know, for a company and a, and a product is really, really stupid. It is, you know, it's hard enough to do any kind of marketing, get people to remember you when you're a new company. And we realized that fairly quickly. And then I was actually the only person that liked BVI Networks better. Everybody else liked Retail Next better. So we decided to rebrand the company's Retail Next. And yeah, it was, it is, it is a pain. Again, we were still reasonably small. So it's a lot less of a pain than for a really big company, but it is a lot of work to rebrand something, but it definitely was the right decision. I mean, the Retail Next as a name, I mean, one is we also, when we first started the business, we actually thought, you know, we'll start with retail and then we'll, maybe do, you know, expand it to retail banking and hospitality and others. And as we started learning what it would take to do this kind of analytics platform for retail, we learned that you have to be an extremely vertically focused company. In fact, we talk about ourselves as a almost retail company first and technology company second. And that's, you know, and in that context, Retail Next even made more name and, and actually changing the company to Retail Next was a public commitment to that, uh, to that vertical focus, which has been a very important part of uh, who we are and how we build credibility with our customers. Got it. So what ended up being the uh, business model for Retail Next? Well, I mean, the, you know, if you look at it, the, the, the concept behind Retail Next was that you know, we are, you know, we, our view of the world was that from a business perspective or from a problem solving perspective was that brick and mortar stores were not going to go away. And if you think about 2007, 2008 financial crisis, a lot of people in the Valley thought the brick and mortar stores were going to go away. Our view was that physical retail was never going to go away. But at the same time, if you're going to run physical retail stores, you're not going to be in a, you cannot just compete on product and price alone on your merchandising. You're going to have to compete based on experience. If you compete based on experience, you need tools to help measure and improve that experience. And also that's as a company, that's what we did. We use latest and greatest technologies to help retailers measure and improve and constantly optimize the experience inside their stores. So we build a set of technologies over the years that you can automatically tell you how many people walk past the store, how many of them walk in. A lot about those people, male, female, approximate age, new repeat visitors, how much time they spend in the store, and just about everything they do in the store, everything your sales associates do in the store. And then build all these tools to use that data to constantly improve the way you run your stores and the way you service your customers. That was always the product. That was always the focus. Over the you know 11 years now, what happened with technology and what we can do today, we couldn't even dream about back then, but that was always the idea. And we always knew that the technologies around computer vision and Wi-Fi and other things are going to improve to a point where you can do more and more. And then we learn, but yeah, from an actual business model, we have a, learned and evolved a lot because we started out as a more of a traditional one-time software model and we moved to a, a full recurring SaaS model. And then we launched our own sensors and hardware that we launched a few years back where now we're in a 
a full IoT company, and then we actually have a subscription model, including hardware and software, as our main go-to-market for last uh, last few years. Got it. And obviously, eleven years is um, is quite a ride, and 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 I'm sure that many things have changed now since the early days. But what what were some of those early days like for you guys? Yeah, no, many many things have changed for sure. Yeah, eleven years is a is is a is, is almost a real commitment, right? So it's a, it's a two yeah business, but I mean, early days were. You know, early days were a lot of fun, right? So it's a few of us, we all knew each other. And, you know, you have a lot less. Honestly, when we started, we were unbelievably passionate about the idea, but we didn't know if it was successful or not. And it felt like we had very little to, to lose, right? Like so, and then as you, and as you go through, as you recruit a lot of people and you get people to leave jobs and if you raise money from both individuals and funds and other things and people and you, and we raised a, a decent amount of uh, capital, it becomes like the level of responsibility becomes very, very different. But to me, like every stage has been very different. The early days were all about, we were a bit ahead of our time. We were doing something nobody's done before. We, were, we felt like we could create a, a, a new industry. Very exciting, but it was also extremely, you know, it, it, it was, um, it was, it was it, I mean, it, 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 retail is a difficult place to introduce new things, right? So the focus was all about to get somebody to, believe in you and find a customer or two that are going to believe in you. I mean, I was, we, we were more fortunate than normal uh, people, I think was initial fundraising. So we had funding, which was uh, from a few individual people, individual investors that were, if you ask them, they were for sure more investing in us than the idea. And that was critical because, you know, what happened in 2008, 2009, no venture person was going to invest in an analytics company that involved physical hardware for brick and mortar retail. That was the last area any institutional investment in Silicon Valley or anywhere else at that time was going to invest. So we had, but we had initial funding and it was really all about, and if you imagine it was 2008, 2009, if you remember, retailers were going to business, shutting down, closing stores, the world was coming to an end. And that was the time when we were talking to our first few potential customers when they're dealing with all those things saying, hey, we have this cool technology that's going to help you do things. It really forced us to be, I think in many ways, it forced us to be super thoughtful about the value of the product because nobody was going to waste time unless they felt that it was a matter of survival for them. But it was definitely a difficult time to uh, to start. Got it, got it. And, and you were talking about uh, funding. So so how much capital have you guys raised so far? We raised, um, you know, uh, almost 200, about $200 million total over the uh, over the years. Uh, mostly equity and, and and a little bit of uh, and some debt more recently, but yeah, about two hundred million dollars. So it's a, a fairly significant amount of money that went into the business. Yeah, and I've seen that you've gone you you've gone from seed all the way to your last day round uh, that was announced. That was the the Series E, which is your most recent one. So can you walk us through the journey of of really going from seed to Series E, and perhaps like some of the expectations that you were encountering from from investors, no? Yeah, no, and 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 yeah, no, happy to um to do that. And and by the way, again, I've never raised money for anything before this company, so it was a, a learning. And as I mentioned, when we started, we raised about two million dollars pretty quickly from a small group of individual investors. One of them put in a million, and then you know, a few of us put in, and it was kind of friends and family, we got to two million dollars, and then the same investors put in another four as we needed it on slightly better terms. So we had about $6 million off. I mean, I guess it's a big seed, but called an angel seed before we did our first uh, uh, venture round. And that, you know, and those investors have been with us since then. The largest individual investor, I think they've put about $9 million of his own money as they participate in different rounds. So, and they've been unbelievable kind of uh, uh, supporters of the, uh, uh, of the business. But that was, you know, but we had that $6 million to build initial business that got us to a point where we had customers, we had revenue, we had some great case studies, we had you know, certain proof point, definite proof points that technology worked and solved the real problem. But you know, we were still, you know, I would say just around maybe just under called two million dollars in in revenue. And then but it looked like it was just about to take off. And then that's where we went and you know started raising our initial well, at least went and looked at raising our initial venture round, and it was very, very difficult. So that was end of 2010, beginning of 2011. 2011 was we closed our first venture round. And the first venture round, even though it looked like the company was starting to go from kind of two to four million, it looked like it was, we had some amazing customers, and it looked like it was going to start really scaling. 
was very, very difficult. I mean, we talked to, I probably talked to 30, 40 different venture groups. We, and there was just a set of, like the metrics looked good and they were looking better and better, but there was a, uh, a set of, uh, one is people just didn't like retail. Everybody thought that said, retailers don't spend money on technology, you can't make money in retail, which to me, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry that's obviously has to transform and technology is gonna play a role in it. It is a ridiculous way to look at it, but at the same time, you look at the, the investors and they had no examples of successful venture exits doing retail technology, and it's hard to get excited. So a lot of people just said, well, we don't invest in retail. or involves physical hardware. People like something where you can press a button and get to $100 million of, of revenue, while for us, you have to physically deploy stores, which, I mean, the issue with, with products where you can, with companies where you can press a button and get $100 million, so, you know, somebody else can press a button and you can lose that $100 million. Our revenue was very sticky, but it's tough. It was tough. And it took, you know, over six months. And finally, we did find, I mean, August Capital, which was a, you know, great fund. And then they did our first uh, venture round. And in the end, it was a great round on good terms. But it took over six months and real pain to get there. Then, you know, that with that round, actually, we started scaling quite a bit and growing really well. And, and all of a sudden, it started scaling exponentially. And the revenues were growing and everything was looking good. We were definitely... Like it was emerging as a real category. We certainly were a clear leader in it. They kind of was creating it. We went to raise our next. The first round was $8 million. That, that was that first venture round after $6 million of private money. We went to raise a new round, which was, I think we were looking to raise about $15 million. And it was easier. At that time, we could get conversations. Everybody wanted to talk to us. And we could get term sheets. But it was still quite a bit of work to get to the valuation we wanted to. And eventually, we did close around with a fund out of New York that, uh, that led that. And then all of a sudden, a few things happened. Big data became a big thing, and we were clearly a big data company. And you know, a company like Splunk went public and made a lot of money for people. I, you know, commerce was something that people said, "Oh, commerce is being transformed," and you know, there's going to be lots of money to be made from being a technology enabler of that transformation. Where when we were just started to think, we were thinking, we were started thinking about going and raising twenty million dollars for the next round. And all of a sudden, before I even you know could finalize a deck and start doing presentations. We had four term sheets and we had all these other people wanted to participate. We had $80 million that people wanted to put into the company. So I remember we actually, you know, raised around to 30, cut it off, took the investors we wanted and closed around. And it was so easy compared to what happened before. Well, the business fundamentally was the same. Yeah, it was growing. It was bigger, significantly bigger. It was fundamentally the same business addressing the same needs. And then, you know, we closed that round and we also brought in some great strategic investors besides financial, like American Express, uh, Qualcomm, where, you know, later we added, uh, you know, some investors in Asia to help us with our global expansion. It was, you know, and then the round after that was a proactive round by one of the investors that participated, came in and led a really big round with quite a bit of capital, uh, you know, to, to kind of to all of that again. And it was, and, and honestly, looking back at it, we raised too much money at a too high valuation too fast, which, you know, I'm, you know, I mean, it worked out, but it was in some ways, you know, it, you know, it creates its own problems because no matter what you say, no matter how you tell yourself, we were so frugal, the way we optimized, the way we grew, we were so scrappy and we were able to grow. And then we told ourselves, Hey, yeah, we now have all this money in the bank. You know, we had, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars of money in the bank. We still going to run it in the same frugal way. No matter what you tell yourself, you don't. When you have that money, you just start making decisions differently, and it actually is very difficult to, uh, to you know, to build a good company that way. At some point, you have to step back and really try to optimize. Got it. Got it. And you were talking about strategics here, so <clears throat> just like you were saying, like Qualcomm, American Express. I mean, all of these guys uh, became part of your cap table. So, so now that you have the experience with VCs and then also perhaps their the corporate venture arms of of these larger corporations. What is the difference that you have really encountered between the traditional VC and the corporate VC? Yeah, well, you know, we have, um, so uh, the, there's a couple of things. And by the way, the, the, where the corporate VC, I think, can be a challenge is if they invest with the idea of an acquisition and then, and if, and it doesn't work out. And I've seen that, and, you know, it can become a challenge for us, folks like American Express and Qualcomm, as an example have been unbelievable partners where both of them 
enable us to do things we couldn't do on our own. Been very, there's been no, been very helpful, open doors. Qualcomm helped us. Without Qualcomm, we would not have been able to develop our own hardware as efficiently. In fact, I'm not sure we would have been able to do it again at, at all. They helped us get it done. I would say they've been amazing investors. And, and it's also, and the fact that they don't have the fundraising pressure of raising funds is, you know, actually they're in some ways much more patient at long term and, you know, and, and it's, you know, less emotional and less, uh, you know, uh, kind of about the different ups and downs of the, uh, of the business. Yeah. But yeah, strategics can be, if strategics invest with a specific agenda and that agenda doesn't work out, that can be a real problem. And we've had a little bit of that with, uh, with some of the other parties. So I think that's the, 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 it's, it's important to understand what's driving the investment and how it's going to be managed. And, you know, but, you know, and, and also who is running it. I mean, American Express, actually, the initial partnership, strategic partnership that drove the investment didn't really work out. But then other things came out of that that have been very successful. So, but that's also how, how they do. But it is definitely possible to be a problem. The venture, I mean, the venture investors are, are, are not all the same. And I think it's the challenge with venture investments for companies that are long-term companies is that sooner or later, if you, I believe if you raise venture money and you are running the company for over five years, six years from your venture round, sooner or later, there's going to be a moment with at least, you know, some one or two of them where your interests might diverge because in terms of, because of their fund cycles and fundraising and other pressure. And where if your interests are completely aligned, then there's no issue. But sooner or later, there is going to be a point where your interests are going to, you know, your actual motivations are going to diverge. And that's where it can get really difficult. But again, and that's where the, the, who the partners are and, and the uh, relationships you have are super important. But that dynamic of fundraising and, you know, and, and, and what and, and internal partner politics in different venture firms and what's important for them to show in terms of markups, other things that may actually be completely irrelevant to the long-term success of the business. I mean, that's a real challenge. And, and I think it, and, 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 and you do, if, you know, if you raise some money and two, three years later, everything is up and to the right and you're selling, everybody makes money, you never run into those challenges. But if you're doing it over a period of time, even if things are going well, sooner or later, there's going to be some, uh, uh, some problems in terms of your, uh, just what's driving you at the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and we've seen that. I mean, we've seen that with cases like Google investing in, in Uber and then all types of issues with them trying to do it on their own. But anyways, that's a different story. And I think that the, what you're touching on here, the having a clear alignment and, and making sure that the agendas are aligning is, um, it makes complete sense. And, and talking about transactions here, Alexei, you guys have done two acquisitions on the, on the buy side that are that have been reported and and i wanted to ask you what have you learned because because almost every acquisition fails it's unbelievable i think it's all about integration so i wanted to ask you what have you learned about integrations and by the way just to to be clear like we had you know we would have not been able to build this business without the, the some of the venture investors and the advice they provided to us and help with actually customers opening doors hiring people thinking through and there is you know especially things like acquisitions like one of our investors was so instrumental in helping us think through and negotiate that so i think that there were you know there's real value in in venture investors as well it's just that it is you have to be a you know there's challenges how it goes around but yeah we did two acquisitions both small private you know uh, private to private deals which initially everybody told me that private to private deals always fail and, you know, and, and, you know, and in this case, I would say, you know, both of them, the first one I would say was very uh, successful where, but, you know, we did have a, uh, a partnership. So it was a, a startup that was related technology. We worked with them on a partnership. I got to know the CEO really well. We got to know the teams. We talked to some customers together. We started working on product integration, going to market together. So we got to know each other fairly well. And in this case, I knew there were, uh, they were uh, they were going out to fundraise. I actually introduced the CEO to some venture guys that I knew, and then I, I, I you know, a couple of people suggested a couple actually of the venture guys that talked to them told me, hey, you know, the company looks interesting on its own. It's a little difficult because of the scale, and they have just you know just this one set of functionality. But combined with you guys, it looks really really interesting. So I went into the CEO and I said, hey, what do you think about trying to get a deal done? And he liked the idea. So we, you know, 
you know, started working on that. It was a, you know, the negotiations were a challenge because of, again, all the different people involved. That's also on their side. They had some investors that had a bunch of ideas and that were a little, you know, about what needed to be done. And again, it's private to private. So other things, you, it was a hundred percent stock deal. And then on our side, if there's one area where all financial investors have an opinion is how deals should be structured and done. So there's definitely a lot of people around the table with, with ideas. But at the end of the day, we got a deal done that I think everybody was happy. And looking back at that deal, it was absolutely successful. I mean, the the teams, the CEO stayed with us, I think, for four or five years as a head of sales and was, you know, helped grow the business. Their head of, you know, we, you know, their head of engineering actually started managing most of our engineering for the last five years. Their head of product now actually runs all of product for us. A bunch of their engineers have been key to kind of as we transformed the company to a SaaS model and moved to a new cloud architecture. And the product itself was, you know, was something that we were able to actually generate quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of revenue from and integrate and leverage a lot of their technology. So I think in every way that deal was a success. But I think it was because, you know, it was a small team. We got to know them well. And, you know, and I think it worked out really well. The second deal was was I mean, it was similar in a way we got to know the team. They were not in the Bay Area. They were in Chicago. And then there was it was a, a slightly more the product that was slightly not quite as easy to integrate, but we felt was very strategic. And, you know, what happens in retail is there's companies that have some really interesting technology and the scaling the channel and the go-to-market is very difficult. Now, it took us years and lots of attempts, but we figured out how to sell stuff to retailers so we could take a product that was very small. And I think we, you know, almost quadrupled the revenue in a two years of the kind of the second deal. And we're, you know, by kind of bringing it into our channel and, and our sales. So there was, I don't think it was not as successful in terms of leveraging technologies and integrating the teams, but financially it was definitely successful. If you look at what we paid for the deal and, and, and what it ended up generating in terms of revenue and cash, it was an extreme success. So, but it was, but you know, both, it was a similar thing where there's a company we knew, we got to know the founder, we introduced them to some customers, we went pitch together to a few customers. We, we got to know them before we uh, tried to do the deal. They are distracting, though. I mean, those deals, even small deals that you do with people you know well, take up a lot, a lot of energy and a lot of effort. So, yeah. and integration is, you know, I think we did a pretty good job, but integration also takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy. I mean, and we did not, you know, we're not a company that had a, a M&A integration machine, right? So all of us had to do it. Got it. Got it. And, and talking about team, because you were you were touching on that eh, earlier with, with some of the integration of your acquisitions. How big is your team now? Um, our team is uh, a little over 200 people, so it's actually working. I mean, we're, we have offices in 10 countries, and we have deployments in 83 countries. We have a lot of subcontractors that do the physical deployments. But the team, and the interesting thing about the team, actually, if you look at it, I mean, for a while, we were doubling, tripling all the time. So, And, and I remember, like, I remember so well when we went from, we went from about 20 to 100 people really, really fast. We hit this crazy growth spurt, and we were just hiring and throwing people at things because you know, we felt like we needed to do it. And, and I remember when we were 20 people, we were, it felt like we were 20 people doing the work of 50 people. It was, yeah. everybody was doing multiple jobs. Everybody was working there, working really hard and producing a lot. And then all of a sudden we we're a hundred people and it felt like we were a hundred people doing the work of 50 people. So you have five times the payroll and the same output. And then it takes a while. You got to slow down and get to a point where you feel like you have a hundred people doing the work of a hundred people before you grow. And then we grew to to, you know, we went from, you know, 20 to 200 really quick. And then we, you know, over the last two and a half years, we've actually been at a fairly stable headcount. We grew a little bit while the revenues have been growing really, really fast. And the margin has been expanding because we definitely over-invested. And then we've been realizing, uh, you know, I think we've been much more focused on kind of operating leverage and, and, and doing and, and, and investing in systems and processes and things like that. And that's been really, really good. And I wish we actually did that earlier. Because, like I mentioned, we, when you uh, the problem is when you uh, when you raise a lot of capital, you, like you just you don't make optimization decisions the same way, and you feel like, oh, we are overwhelmed here. We need help. Let's put on a person. Let's hire a person. Or you hire people to do jobs that you should that, that shouldn't exist because you should have improved your processes and automation and those type of things. And that's where you and then you look back, and all of a sudden you have a company that just doesn't feel nearly as efficient as it should be. Yeah, yeah, and 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 obviously. We're talking about eight years of experience here, and, and in, eight, in sorry, in eleven years of experience, I guess the um, the landscape has changed quite a bit. I mean, now we have 
uh, Amazon and and things like that that have really taken off as well. So so I wanted to ask you, where do you see retail heading in the next, let's say, five to ten years? Yeah. So it's um, you know it's been fascinating what's happening with the in, in the in the retail market. And by the way, Amazon. Things like Amazon acquiring Whole Foods and what Alibaba is and you know and Tencent doing with physical retail acquisitions in China has been one of the best things for us because it's been so motivating. All of a sudden you have and Amazon did this, you know, they did the Amazon Go cash shows checkout, which is a different use case, but it's all about sensors and IoT and computer vision. And they acquired, you know, Whole Foods, and then people started talking about, oh, Amazon is going to acquire Kohl's or someone else, and they're going to put in all these sensors. They're going to use their analytical expertise, and they're going to kill everybody. And that's been, you know, uh, you know, whether it's hysterical or not, it's been a very motivating for people to start <laughs> start doing things like like what we provide. And it's hard for retailers to do on their own. But if you look at my view of the, here's the interesting thing about retail over the last few years: it's e-commerce came out, became this hot thing, and it hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars been put into a bunch of different brands. And a lot of that money did not generate a good return because it happened that what happened is in a lot of categories, e-commerce is very difficult to, to run profitably. So if you look at things like apparel and shoes and accessories, the variable costs of running a pure e-com business make it almost impossible for a lot of categories to make any money. And when I say variable costs, I mean, there's things, the expectations that are set by companies like Amazon and Zappos and ASOS and others around returns and shipping and delivery is unsustainable. I mean, they're very expensive. And then the other one that's even more important in some ways is customer acquisition. Acquiring customers online is very expensive and it's none of those costs go down with scale. In fact, the customer acquisition cost has been going up. So the cost of a Facebook ad is 10x what it was seven, eight years ago, and it's going up at least 10% every, every year. And for you as a customer, as, as a brand, you know, acquiring a new customer has become incrementally more expensive as you scale. And people realize that while brick and mortar, while we, yeah, we're overstored, we have too many malls in the US. If you have a decent brand that's relevant and you open a store in a good location and you do a good job with a store, it actually becomes your best customer acquisition vehicle. And while you have some upfront fixed costs, it's actually much easier to generate a profit in a store than online for a lot of categories. So, and, and, and you know, and it, you have to have both. You have to have online and the store. So that's why you see all these direct-to-consumer brands are opening stores. And then the other thing that happened is the multi-brand retail became, in most categories, about less relevant. I think beauty, people like Sephora and Alta are still really good retailers and very, very relevant. But you look at a lot of the multi-brand retail in apparel and, for example, and you look at if you were a new shirt company or you're a new shoe company, a brand that was starting up 10 years ago, the first thing you would try to do is get a deal done with Nordstrom or whoever is the right multi-brand retailer for you. Today, all these guys are starting out as direct-to-consumer online, and then they run into some scaling issues and they start opening stores. And they're scaling, and they're scaling as a direct-to-consumer retailers. That's a big, big change, and it's impacting like how people how it works. And by the way, if you are direct to consumer brand that owns a category and knows that category well, competing with someone like Amazon is much easier than if you're trying to do a lot of different things. And you know, and and and, and they are very focused on. If you look at the way the opening stores, they're creating different experiences. They're doing things differently. They're trying to build communities around their products, and a lot of them are doing extremely, extremely well. Now, there's still a lot of retailers out there that are that will go out of business because, but it's not retail. It's those retailers are just haven't, the brands are stale, the relationship with consumers is not there, the stores haven't been updated. I mean, they should go out of business. But retail as a category, I actually think is thriving in many ways. And if you look at it, it's thriving globally. I mean, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. And stores, there's no question stores will play a big role because online, as I think, online, almost anything you do, if you have a product that everybody wants and no one else can buy anywhere else, for a while, it doesn't matter what you do. And that's some amazing, you know, you look at some of the new brands that are just growing like crazy because they have a really hot product and people buy. But outside, you know, outside of that, the only things you can do online to truly differentiate yourself are generate unique content and build a community, which if you are, if you are very, and when I say niche, I don't mean it as a, it has to be small, it's some big niches, but if you are focused on aspect of like pet lovers or certain aspect of beauty and you can create this content that people really like and you can build community on that 
that can be sustainable. Outside of that, yeah. anything you can do on your website, people can replicate and you can differentiate yourself. Now, right. stores, stores are difficult to execute well, but if you create a good experience and you execute well, it becomes a sustainable differentiator that people remember, and that's the way you differentiate your brand. And that, I think, yeah. is going to become more important, not less important. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that experience is, uh, is definitely key. I think that the um, you know all of these spaces now that are becoming empty, I mean, I see them in New York City and and really the ones that are thriving, the experiences and, and how they're able to capture and bring and, and, and really create that loyalty with customers is, I mean, what you were alluding to, I, I agree. I very much agree with. So so let me ask you this, Alexei, because you, uh, just like any other guest, I always like to ask this question. And if you could go to the past and give yourself advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I, honestly, I think that for me, I would have focused much earlier on profitability than we did. I mean, there's a million different things about hiring people and the kind of people you want to hire different things and, and you know, how not go, become an internationalist early and all the kind of more like, you know, huge lessons that, or how you build your sales team and huge lessons around each one of those. But if I look at it fundamentally for me, I would have wanted to, I think if you focus on, profitability earlier, which is not really the venture way here, you end up building a better business. And, you know, and, and, and then we, we focused on that later. And I think that improved, but you, you build a much better business if you focus on it earlier. And, and certainly that's what I would have liked to do differently. Got it. Got it. So what is the uh, best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say, hi, Alexei? Um, I, you know, I, you know, it's, uh, well, they can, you know, me over LinkedIn probably is the easiest. Just let me know uh, what they want to talk about. So that's definitely the easiest. Got it. Fantastic. Well, Alexei, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much. Hey, same here. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you have a great day. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.